You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. All right. Hey, folks. Um, man, I've actually been looking forward to this interview for a while. Um, my guest today is Steve Weens. And uh, Steve is many things. He's a pastor. He actually has a great podcast himself called uh, This Good Word. Uh, Steve's written several books. The most recent just came out, um, oh boy, by the time this show publishes, probably three or four weeks ago. The book is called Shining Like the Sun, Seven Mindful Practices for Those Who've Lost Their Faith But Are Still in Search of God. Um, just as somebody who's gone on several faith deconstructions and reconstructions myself, I was really keen uh, to read the book. Uh, I read it over the past couple of weeks. It's a, a fantastic read. So Steve and I are going to get into some of the things on the book. And then as always, uh, we like to please our people here. Steve has also, um, I would describe gleefully, <laughs> embraced the upcoming uh, gauntlet of anxiety questions. So Steve, welcome to the show. Steve, thanks so much for having me. And I really am. I am delighted. Um, to participate in the gauntlet of anxiety questions. That is going to be <laughs> fun. <laughs> You're a sick man. You're a sick man. <laughs> hey, I, uh, you know, I was just preparing for this. I, I've been following you on Twitter for a while and, and we bump into each other on, on social media, but um, I did go into your website just to prepare and I hadn't seen this about you where you just describe yourself. I help people take their faith as seriously as their doubt. Uh, I think that's that put to words why I've really appreciated your work. So many people have written so many books on deconstruction. It feels to me like you are picking it up from there and and helping us. Uh, talk to us about that. Thanks for picking up on that, Steve. Um, I, you know, I think I've had my own angsty deconstruction, several of them, by the way. And I think that's really natural and really healthy. But like you, I've also noticed there is a tone in maybe social media, but also in many books where it's a, almost like we, you know, the point is to be angsty. <laughs> and I think there's a season for that. But I actually really am very interested in myself and my own faith, but helping people, even if it's just they're hanging on by a thread, um, to reconnect with goodness uh, of God and humanity. And almost everybody that's given up on God, I think it's like, I end up finding out that they should have given up on that God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that God that they stopped believing in needed to be stopped believing in. And so, but rather than stopping there, you know, I think there's always, there's always more to discover about God and humanity and how that all interplays. And so I, I, I love the intersection of, um, of curiosity and mystery uh, and humanity, I think, the most. Yeah, and I love that, uh, like very early in the book, you use the metaphor of a fire and how people, we're just in this season where everyone's trying to burn it all to the ground. I think you're inviting us to really look at, okay, so go ahead and burn it. Like you said, that's the, you should have fired that God that, you yeah. know, that's not even the real true God. But boy, you, if I remember right, and I think it was your introduction, you kind of combine anger and the fire. People are so angry. They've lost any, they have this craving for the spiritual, but they've lost any appetite to go rebuild it or something. How would you put that? Yeah, well, I sort of, you know, I follow the 
the metaphor in the subtitle of rekindling your faith. And so I follow that and I say, you know, there's a kind of rekindling that's all, it's just burns too brightly at first. And it's all hype and it's kind of all cliches and maybe prosperity gospel, if you want to call it that. Um, but then there's also a kind of a rekindling that is only interested in, you know, in deconstructing the fire you grew up around and, and calling it out for being worthless. And again, I, I think that's absolutely necessary. But then I think what you end up with at times is a faith that's so lifeless that you have to sort of pretend that you're sitting around a fire, but really it's, um, it, it's everyone's freezing to death. And I think there's just something much more robust uh, than either of those options. I don't know if I mentioned two or three options there, but, um, and I do think there's a way of looking at faith that is either too overhyped or too deconstructy that leaves people, um, you know, undernourished and over hungry. Um, and so maybe they give up or they keep searching in, in some of the same tired ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's a powerful way of thinking about it. Like there's a different way of thinking about rekindling faith and that's where we get into mindfulness. Yeah. You're a pastor and you, you just mentioned in passing that you yourself have had a number of deconstruction reconstructions. Uh, Walter Brueggemann, right? He calls it orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Yeah, that's, that's I love that. that. Ongoing cycle. I think most congregants are always surprised. I've gone through that a number of times. Congregants are always surprised when their pastor goes through that. My experience is most of us lead the way. Did, was your first deconstruction when you were in the pulpit or was it before that? It was just before, actually. So I really only came to life in God for the first time around age 21. I mean, I grew up in the church and I certainly would have called myself a Christian in every way, shape or form in, in, in all the all the prayers to receive Christ and all the rededications and all the camps. And I did all of that, but it was never real for me until I really had this mystical experience in the Eucharist actually. And I didn't have any idea what was happening, but I really met the real presence of Christ. And I felt, I felt God telling me that God liked me and it just wrecked me. I mean, it just absolutely, I mean, I bawled in front of everybody. It was, I was uncontrollably weeping and it was utterly surprising, Stephen. Like it was, that came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. And so I think that, I, that led me to deconstruct, I was 21, a faith that was really all about not doing the wrong things and making sure I was doing the right things. And of course, I was already doing all the wrong things anyway. I, the interesting thing is at that Eucharist was I, I, I had chosen to work at a Christian camp after partying my way through the first three years of college and having a blast actually but I was hung over the day, the first day that I got up there on staff at this church. <laughs> and so for God to say that God liked me was shocking because there was no, I didn't earn anything. It was simply a fact. I was overcome by the affection, like Brennan Manning calls it, you know, seized by the power of great affection. So I think that was my first deconstruction. My second one came really close um, to that because I met this woman who I ended up marrying, but, um, I was just a, 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 a non, 
non-thinking complementarian at that time. Meaning, non-thinking mean I just had never I'd never thought that there was a different way of thinking about ministry or marriage. But I met this woman, and I really liked her. But in some of the first questions that she asked me was, well, what do you believe about women and ministry and women and marriage? And I sort of, you know, I mean, I never even, it sounds ridiculous, but I, as a white man, 21 years old, I'd never, never yeah. even, yeah, <laughs> yeah, what's the problem? I benefited by that old system. <laughs> yeah. Everything's, Everything's working, working great why, why would I, why would I mess it up? But, but that, that led me onto yeah. a journey of changing my mind on that. And, and, and there've been others too. I mean, um, how I see the Bible has changed radically over the years. I think I love it more than I ever have, but also I, I look at it very, very differently. Um, so, and at our, our church, it's a church plant. It's about six years old. So it, it has the benefit of like, they, they got to know me in my mid forties when I had already gone through some of the deconstructions. And so I think they're less surprised than other churches might be that their pastor. I think that's one of the things that they count on in me <laughs> that I, you know, they, they sort of feel more human if they know that I, that I have gone through several, but, um, but it always shocks me how some people really um, feel the need to root down into certainty when it, it seems to me that certainty is the opposite of faith, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Faith and knowledge are opposites. And yeah, people are trying to get the mystery down to a bumper sticker or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I just think like... We, you know, people say, don't put God in a box, but I, I think you, you always will. I mean, and, and the only question is, will you allow that box to be broken? Right. And will you keep expanding who you think of as, you know, I will be what I will be. God says to Moses. And that's just one of my favorite parts of all of scripture, that answer. Tell me who you are. I will be who I will be. That's just fantastic. I mean, that's mystery. All right. So uh, one of the phrases you use early in the book, and you return to it a lot, is just the phrase returning to here. And here is capitalized. Uh, could you explain what you mean by that? Well, so that comes from several different places, but um, there's a story in the Hebrew scriptures of Jacob. You know, So Jacob's the grandson of Abraham, who's the father of Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And Jacob has not done well in life. He's swindled his way through life, basically, and he's on the run. And we read in this one story that he um, he comes to, quote, a certain place, end quote. And then in that same verse, that, that word place is used three times in one verse. And, you know, those of us biblical nerds are, are trained to pay attention when that, so like, what is this word? And, and the word is hamakom. And hamakom comes, it's Hebrew, comes from the root word kom, which means to stand. And so essentially hamakom is the place or a place where you stand. It's here, here. Hamakom is here. And at the end of the story, Jacob meets God in a dream in this ordinary place. Uh, he wakes up to God ironically by falling asleep. And that's one of the paradoxes that I love. And he desperately needs to meet God. And God tells him some wonderful things about, I'll never leave you and I'll, I'll restore you to where you have come from. And, um, and he hasn't earned any of that. Um, and I later found out that the rabbis usually, uh, one of the names for God for the rabbis was Hamakom. Like that's one of the, so God is the place. Um, and so 
uh, how I see returning to here is when you find yourself distracted, which we are so often, we've, it's so hard to just embrace where you are. We're thinking, I mean, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic and it's so hard. I mean, I talk to so many people, myself included, and we say the hardest thing about this is the uncertainty. We don't know when it's going to end. But what would it look like to return to here even in this moment? And if God is, in a sense, timeless, then you can think, well, God is outside of time. But really, what what how we can describe that as God is always simply and only here. <laughs> you know, for God, everything, every moment is here. So if we're going to return, if we're going to talk about returning to God and rekindling our faith in God, it, it isn't found outside of this moment. I mean, this very moment. Um, Mr. Rogers seemed to have captured this, right? If you saw the documentary or the Tom Hanks movie, whenever he talked to people, he was so very present with them. And uh, the Tom Hanks version of it, he, he does it so beautifully. But it's like he he captured that reality of the most sacred thing that we can do the most meaningful thing that we can do if we want to find God is return to where we are, return to here. And I know that sounds woo-woo maybe, you know, <laughs> that sounds sort of, but if my desire, is, again, if my desire is to find God, I don't believe I can find God in the past. I don't believe I can find God in the future. And if I can't even inhabit where I am, whether it's washing the dishes, getting yelled at by my boss, yelling at my spouse, taking a nap. If I can't inhabit those moments, then it's going to be really, really difficult to experience a loving God who is waiting for me in the here and now. I don't have to go anywhere or be anyone else. Um, and I find that very compelling. And I do, it's not easy, but I find that idea very compelling rather than having to go on some huge search that's so tired. You know, aren't we all so tired of, of jumping through hoops, whether that be, you know, believing the right things, doing the right things, not doing the wrong things? Long answer to a short question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. I, I love that you mentioned um, the Mr. Rogers movie. I, at, growing up in Australia, Mr. Rogers was non-existent to me. Yeah. I came to America for college and college kids are cynical and make fun of everything. Oh, yeah. So they made fun of Mr. Rogers. And right. I didn't realize until after college that he wasn't a joke. I'm, I'm quite ashamed to admit it. Oh, me too. In college, he was mocked because he's talked very slowly and very simply. And uh, actually, it was Mike Iaconelli uh, with the, uh, uh, the satire magazine, The Door, did an interview of Fred Rogers in The Door. And we discover he's this theologically genius, like phenomenal guy. So yeah, so I've, I've, I've become a fanboy uh, as an adult. Went to see the movie, completely unprepared that of course they were going to shape the movie like his TV show. And there we asked, I'm in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers staring right at us. Yeah. And how long did that last? 30 seconds or a minute maybe? Oh, I think it was a minute. That That one scene where they're in the restaurant, there, I think it was, I think it was about a minute. That was profound. And you know, what's interesting about, cause I, I had just watched the documentary. So 
in that scene, some of the people sitting around that restaurant, yeah, yeah you know this one I'm going to say, but are his kids and I think his wife his is wife. even in there. Yep. It's, it's and they're all just looking and smiling, they're looking over their yeah. shoulder and smiling at him. Oh, yeah. it's, it's got it's, me emotional right uh, now. I'm just thinking about it. I know. It. I, I, what I want to capture aside from just the wonder of Fred Rogers is I, I think, I think your point should not be lost on us. That was one minute that I will never forget in my whole life. Yeah. And I, I guess what you are inviting to us, uh, us to is that is the power of returning to the here is you, you only need these moments. You don't have to live like some monastic existence no. to encounter the visceral grace of God. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, yes, sorry, I don't, I don't want to zip past what you just said to encounter the visceral presence of God. We just need this moment. Yeah. 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 So in, in that context, in your book, you're writing about silence and how difficult it is. Talk to us about your early stumblings into practicing silence and how long did it take for you to feel like that became a more natural habit? Well, I go in and out of it, to be honest. But I think it's the hardest thing about trying to practice silence and meditation is getting over the reality of failing or succeeding. Because, you know, the truth is, if you set your intention on five minutes even of silence, you set a timer and you sit there, and before you know it, you're thinking about your groceries or your dog or whatever. And then your tendency is to go, oh, you know. But the whole point of doing meditation and silence is to have that realization that I'm not here. Like, so we, it's, it's to train your mind when you're not practicing meditation and silence. That when you're, when, when you've wandered away from the moment, you can gently return to the moment. That's that's the entire reason why we would do silence. And so the point in, in silence, at least according my my opinion here, my my novice opinion, is not to have some mystical experience with God, unless that happens, which that'd be great. But the minute you the minute you notice that it was happening, it would be over. You know, so um, but it is to train your mind to return to the moment. And the only way to do that is by intentionally like following your breath or staring at a candle for enough time in silence where maybe in five minutes, you might do it 25 times. You notice you're thinking about something else and then you return. Well, the more you do that and the longer that you do that, again, the more you are able to do that in real life. Um, that's just the training ground. And so for me, like I'm in a little group that we meet once every month and we just talk. Um, it's, it's four of us, but we always start with 10 minutes of silence, you know? And that's really fascinating to do it with other people. Yeah, that is fascinating. So, yeah, what happens there? Well, it's hard, you know, it, it's, it's actually, so it's, it's literally just silence, but um, silence by yourself and silence with others, there's just a totally different quality to it that I, I can't, it's very, it's much more difficult for me to enter into it. Um, are you facing it? Yeah. We're, we're just, we're like, and, and you know, it's sometimes we're outside. It's, it's just four of us. Sometimes we're outside yeah. and there's a little thing that this person reads and then leads us into silence. And then we just sit there and someone sets the timer, but it always feels like 20 minutes or 30. 
And in fact, yeah. one time it really was feeling like so like a really long time. And the guy <laughs> forgot to set his timer, you know, this time we were like, and finally one of us broke, you know, he said like, man, is it 10 minutes? Yeah. Um, but I think the other, the one thing that that does is we usually meet at night, seven o'clock and it's amazing what it, what it does for me is it makes me realize how fast I've been moving throughout the day. And, and so with other people to gather and have 10 minutes of silence, probably just, it slows me down enough to where I can listen. You know, in, in our church, we, we do one minute of silence, uh, right after, right before we do the Eucharist, we do the Eucharist every week. And even that's, and we, we make sure it's a full minute, you know, not more, but not less, a real minute. And even that is instructive, you know, um, even that is a good rhythm for a community of people to have. You know, five minutes would probably be really awkward, you know, but one minute is okay within a church service. Yeah, we have practiced silence in our church. We we receive Eucharist every week, and silence is a piece of that experience. Yeah. And uh, boy, for our new newcomers and our guests, it's utterly unnerving to yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. And we even explain it each time. We say, "Here's what we're doing and why." Yeah, you yeah. know, there's plenty of noise. And, yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite things that you wrote about the practice of silence, you just referred to it now, Steve, is uh, the tendency of even well-meaning believers to co-opt any spiritual discipline and white-knuckle it ourselves. Yeah. You know, so um, I'm going to use silence to make sure I engage God. I love how you you just lay it out for us in the book that it's its own gift and oh, there yeah. should be zero expectation. I, I think that's actually a gift, particularly to productive-minded leaders that, that demand efficiency, you, you're really inviting us to a highly inefficient way of being. <laughs> well, I take that as a great compliment because I'm one of those efficiency people. Maybe I've had to learn the hard way, you know, but I think I, be, I, I became, in my prayer even, I became so tired of coming up with words, uh, my own words and spontaneous words that, so I, you know, switched to praying through the hours, written prayers. I love that fixed hour prayer. And then, um, you know, these days and by these days, I mean the last few years yeah. sitting in silence really is, um, like silent presence. And I, I sometimes use my imagination to picture, like if I'm praying for someone, really what that means is I'm not really using any words. I'm just picturing bringing that person to the presence of Christ and leaving that person in the presence of Christ and then leaving. Um, like that's my picture of praying for someone. Um, because even prayer for me has become or became white knuckling it. If I'm, yeah. if I had to come up with all my words and, and a way of being, you know, that was my, you know, how authentic can I really be? And then that became a measurement of, <laughs> am I doing it right or not? Yeah. So the more we can, the more I, I'll just speak for myself, the more I can take the pressure off expectation of what's going to happen, what I'm going to do or what God's going to do in the, in the practices or the disciplines. It seems like the better off I am. Yeah. Well, you mentioned before we hit record that you're Enneagram three, you know, you I would understand that because I'm an Enneagram three that you're driven by performance and being noticed for your abilities and and on the positive side, your, your contributions. You have a wonderful uh, piece in the book where you talk about wrestling, you're about to meet with someone, you got some coaching from some family and you just kept saying, which version of myself am I trying to be? <laughs> I, and I, as soon as I read that, I thought, I wonder if Steve's an Enneagram 3 that, yes. that resonated. 
uh, tell us a bit about that. Well, yeah, I was heading into a conversation that was going to be tough. And so I emailed my family, my, like my sisters and my mom and dad. Um, and they just gave, you know, the, Oh, you're great at this. Just be yourself and it'll be fine. And I really did panic a little bit because I, I, and you know, part of this is just, I overthink almost everything. And so this is yet another example of me overthinking it, but, but I sort of playfully wrote out my overthinking it in the book. Right. And so I asked myself, well, which me should I be? Yeah. The one, the one that is is carefully polished so that there's no edges, or the one that's um, overthinks everything, or the one you know. And so I go through all these different scenarios, and I think, um, especially for people like us, Steve Enneagram threes, we sort of our gift is we can quickly adapt. Yeah, we can we really walk in a room and we can figure out. Yeah, what need we, we're chameleons, like you said. We can figure out what we need to be in order to get what we think people want. The problem with that is that we can zero in so highly on what someone else is thinking or feeling, or what we think they're thinking or feeling, that we actually train ourselves to not even consider what we're thinking or feeling. And so, the question of what me should I be, really. Um, is a pretty poignant question for an Enneagram three because we really have a hard time knowing the real true self. And so, um, you know, I think I can sometimes like being vulnerable can be a mask I wear. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I I, I mean, yeah, at the risk of of piling onto what you're saying, I, I think the biggest temptation for our generation is curated vulnerability. Yes. Uh, just enough vulnerability to move people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have, you have a, a wonderful chapter. You kind of build on the idea where you talk about being on script and you talk to us about being aware of the triggers that are keeping us on script. I wonder if you could tell us what you mean by being on script. Yeah. So um, Father Thomas Keating came up with these this beautiful way of understanding why we react the way we react. And he basically said that everyone has, you know, the need for esteem and approval, the need for security and survival. And I think the need for um, power and control on some level, but according to our childhood wounds, we, we tend to gravitate toward one of those, of those things in order to get approval and esteem which was mine, my primary one, I will write a script of what I need to say, do, think, believe. And then if I follow it, that script, then I will get the approval and esteem that I need. Um, and we all react to these in different ways, but I think um, they they really lead us to curating false selves. And Henry Nowen, Brandon Manning, many others, Thomas Merton talks about the false self, which is the illusory self. It's not real, but it's the self that we think we need to be in order to get what we think we want, what we think we need. And in some ways what we do need and those programs for happiness, Thomas Keating called those programs for happiness. Um, excuse me, they, they were necessary for us. I mean, so like we needed those, we, we, we needed to, curate some sort of self in order to survive as a kid. But then at some point when we become adults, we need to examine that script and say, is it working? And if it's not my true self, which it probably isn't, it, it, 
we really need to work on learning how to improvise and learning how to tear up those scripts. And there's probably more than one. And of course we have scripts for other people too, that we want them to follow. And so I find that that's just a helpful, it's a helpful construct for me to get outside, like for me to observe myself. And so, um, like the other day, oh man, um, my wife was like, she, so I did this particular chore in this particular way and she just barely asked like the uh, two words of a question about how I did it. And I yelled, I mean, I got mad at her. I, I got really, really defensive and I could tell it really took her back. And then I was like, what the, I mean, like that was like a level 10 reaction to a level two infraction, you know, but I was being triggered my trigger was, I assumed she was about to say, you didn't do this right. You never do this right. Why did, why can't you ever get this right? Now, actually, sometimes I think she does think that. And sometimes she says that, <laughs> you know what I mean? But very rarely, she's a very kind person, actually. And she wasn't doing that then. But because my script, in some ways, one of my scripts says that in order for me to get approval and esteem... I, I have to succeed at everything hundred percent of the time. I have to get an A plus on everything. And the ironic thing is like, no one likes those people, you know? <laughs> I mean, that's, no, they're awful right. to live yeah, with. They're on, you can't live with them. So it's clearly a script. It clearly isn't working, but I still get triggered as a 49 year old male, you know? So I still have work to do. Let me flip it the other way, Steve. One of the biggest struggles that I have wrestled with as a lead pastor. I, I've been in ministry 25 years, but a lead pastor for 14, 15, mm -hmm. um, is the, the, the handful of people that cannot seem to see me as a human being because of the script in their mind. And my goodness, it feels like I'm on a tightrope. It feels like they built the ladder and encouraged, they, they put treats up the rope to get me up there. And then once I'm up there, they take away the pole and they add the fan. Like, just doom. What do you do when people are living out their script so strongly that they're projecting it onto you? Oh, I so resonate with that. And that's absolutely happened recently. Um, and I, first of all, I notice, I notice cause I'm, I'm better usually not having a reaction like I had with my wife with a yeah. parishioner, you know, yeah. but, um, I, I have certain shame triggers, like a certain feeling down up and down my back. That's a, that's a, I, so I try to notice that I'm triggered that someone is treating me in such a way that's completely unfair, but I do internally, I feel angry. I feel entitled to them not having that opinion about me. Um, <laughs> you know, but when I was going through this, maybe six months ago, I had one of, one of the people I was talking to about it said to me, Steve, there are certain people that I think are committed to misunderstanding you. Yeah. You know, and he was they certainly have to in order to keep this script intact. Yes. And so, so this is like, I, I'm not very good at this, but detachment helps. So detachment says essentially, I need to find a way to look at this outside of the snow globe of the situation in which 
if I don't leave that snow globe, I'm just going to just be caught in it. I won't be able to see anything. And so, and this is so funny, but the, have you heard of the comedian Pete Holmes? He's just oh, yeah. one of my, okay. I love Pete Holmes. Yeah. yeah. And he says this thing, like he, he, he says one of the ways that he detaches is he imagines himself. He imagines watching himself on TV. Like he's watching like, so I'm, you're watching this pastor that you like on this TV show and you like this guy and you're watching him get misunderstood by this person and you're cheering for him. And you're also sort of hoping that he doesn't really respond perfectly, you know, like you're hoping that he might <laughs> blow it a little bit. Yeah. And, um, I don't know why that helps me, but that helps me. It helps me to realize like, I don't have to react perfectly. Um, cause that's the other trap I fall into. Someone treats me that way. And, and they, I love your picture. Like they put the treats all the way up the ladder and make me go all the way up there. And then they sweep it up and they sweep the legs, you know, right. Is that, is that I don't know. I, I want to be kind. Right. And I don't want to be a jerk, but I have to take away that, that expectation that I have, that I will respond perfectly to even the most like really mean and unrealistic things that people say and sometimes, you know, treat me like. So it's a very complex, certainly you weren't looking for anyone to solve that problem, but detachment really helps. Um, no, I, I thought that way. was a great, I, I'll be using that. The snow globe metaphor is a powerful oh, yeah. Yeah. way to look at it. Plus the frivolity of um, kind of hoping the pastor gets in trouble somehow. That's, that's kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I have another, super quick, another friend that's a pastor that, um, and he swears that he does this, but if someone sends him an email that's nasty, he will invite that person in for a meeting. He won't respond other than, hey, can we meet? He will print out the email. He will give that person a printout of the email. And he'll say, I'd like to begin by you just reading me that email. Yeah. And he says that no one can get through because they realize when they do it, you know, now is that mean? I don't know if that's mean. It, it seems like, hey, if, you know, if, if we're going to play this, let's play it all the way, you know, so... I don't know. There is power. It's it's hard to know what to do. I, I think there is power when I hear that example. Um, that pastor, I think, is telling that emailer, "I'm a I'm exactly yeah. human sized." Yes. Um, it's funny. I wonder if because I've heard that from a good friend of mine, and I wonder if we're both talking about the same same person. person. Are they based in Colorado? This yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Does the first name rhyme with Daniel. Um. No. Wait. No. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Uh, so yeah, a friend of mine. First name uh, rhymes with practice. bicycle, kind of. Anyway, <laughs> we'll, we'll keep going. Maybe maybe they, maybe they steal each other's stuff. That's great. Yeah, they may be in the same town, but uh, my my friend was telling me that practice and um, the way he frames it is: look, I just want to make sure we're on the same page before we start. So go ahead and read me your email, and then of course in his presence, they're they're mortified at what they said and how they treated him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have not had the courage to do that yet. I can be a bit of a conflict avoider at times. Um, but that seems like it might be a, a gift for everybody, but I don't know. I, I used to have trouble governing it. I'd either stuff it, like you said, I'd be an mm -hmm. avoider, I'd be the bigger man, and then I'd just stew and feel, yeah. usually what I'd feel is self-pity. Yeah. You know, woe is me, how oh, hard yeah. is my life? 
but then sometimes that's especially my early, it really caught me off guard, Steve, when I became a lead pastor. Because yeah. having done a lot of ministry by then, I was like, where did this come from? This, this caricaturing yeah. of me. And because one of my idols is needing to be understood and mm-hmm. needing to be liked, mm-hmm. boy, I put pressure on it. So I, I would swing the, uh, the pendulum too far. I remember one regrettable conversation where I just told the person, she was laying out for me all the pastors who had let her down in all the mm. years of her. And I said, oh, well, just go ahead and kill me and put me, put, mount my head on a wall now. Let's get it over with. Yeah. And what, yeah. what I was trying to say is, can we get this over with and then see what's on the other yes. side of it? Yes. But I do have a strong inner smart aleck, and I think it came across <laughs> a bit, you know, like an ass. Yeah. And she was quite hurt uh, because yeah. she, of course, was not aware that if eight pastors in a row have let her down, it's not those eight pastors. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of came away thinking, ah, that's not the solution either. That's not helpful. You know, it's not very redemptive, but boy, it's a hard. I think hard it's really hard. hard. I think it's really hard. Um, you know, yeah. And, and I, I, I don't, it's probably not just for pastors, but certainly we all, we, man, we go through that. And I, I, I've been in ministry for 25 years, but I've only been a lead pastor for six years. Hmm. So I, I really noticed that switch actually. Yeah. Um, I resonate with that. I think it's true. Oh yeah, it's um, it's strange. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you have these seven practices: simplicity, uh, the the a rich conversation. You have a whole chapter on delight, and uh, I, I'll just say I was delighted. <laughs> you did a, a nerd level deep dive into Bill Hader and yes. the TV show Barry. <laughs> yes, um, which yeah, I've been a Bill Hader fan for a while. I've not watched Barry, but but you've kind of triggered me it's time to go watch that show uh what's well first of all why do you love the tv show barry let's get that out of the way well so um first of all it's on hbo and second of all i think you can get it for free right now i think hbo is giving shows for free and i think so barry it's 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 a really dark show yeah but it's also a really hilarious show and somehow it's incredibly poignant. Bill Hader actually isn't very funny in this show. It's it's everyone else who is. Henry Winkler and some of these other side characters. Bill Hader plays a person that is so profoundly depressed, but also it wants to wake up to real life so badly, but there's his story is getting in the way and he just, he cannot tell his story. It's too, it's too messed up. So he wanders, he (laughs) finds his way into this acting class and Henry Winkler is the, yeah, it's his improv class. I I know just enough about it to be dangerous. He has a background as an assassin or something like that. Yeah. Well, he is an assassin. And that's not giving away anything. He is an assassin. Okay. (laughs) Um, He is an assassin. And his background is that he used to be in the military in Afghanistan. And that's that part of that story comes out. But um, he makes a pretty good living, you know, killing bad guys. And in the opening episode, he, there's this speech and I actually write about it in the book, but he approaches Henry Winkler, who's the drama class. And he's just delightful enough. I mean, Henry Winkler is a genius in this show. I don't know if he won any Emmys, but he should have. But, um, basically Barry pours out a lot of his story, but 
Henry Winkler thinks it's a monologue that he's prepared for to audition. And so there's this big confusing thing. And, but Barry's eyes, like the acting that Bill Hader does in this show is so compelling. He's a, you love him. And there's no real great reason why you should love him other than you are rooting for him so hard. So I think, you know, as it relates, like he's hungry for something. And that's why I love the show so much. I'm very drawn to people that are hungry for reality. You know, they're hungry to put to death the fault. And that's really what he's trying to do. He's he's struggling with who am I and how do I find my real self and how do I tell my story in a way that people will still will not utterly reject me once they hear it. But even in that is how do I tell myself my story in a way that I won't utterly reject myself. And so the themes of true self, false self, um, are so rich, uh, in this. Now, some people are going to watch it and they're going to be like, I don't see any of that stuff. It's that's ridiculous. Like, it's just a really weird (laughs) movie with a lot of violence, but I I see so much more in that, in that show. I love it. I think I first discovered, I I've appreciated Bill Hader. His laugh is so life-giving just hearing him laugh when he's interviewed. But I think it was Terry Gross in Fresh Air. They got into Barry and I came away thinking I have to because they played some of those clips, his, his improv with Winkler. And I thought, how fascinating when a, 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 a Saturday Night Live comedian is finding the depths of pain and, and yearning and putting it out for all of us to see. It's great stuff. And, and again, like, I mean, I, if I watch it again, I don't think I would disagree with myself here. But Bill Hader is not funny in this show. Like, he's, that's not his. Now, he might be funny on accident a few yeah, times, but he's not, he, right. he's not doing it. He is, in his usual. he's actually doing drama like that in this comedy. He is, and he's acting with his eyes and his face, not even talking. So he, he's brilliant. I mean, the, he puts his, his portrayal is brilliant. Yeah. Well, Steve, let's get into the gauntlet. You've right. been a good sport about uh, covering your book, but I think it's time we uh, we ask. So these are questions that I generally ask every guest. Uh, the gauntlet's actually about 15 questions. I grab any three to five. Um, so I've actually not asked this one in a couple of seasons. It might be good to revisit it. Uh, I believe that the first step for a leader to help figure out their anxiety is to notice it physiologically usually shows up in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening body. Where would it begin with you? Well, probably a tightening body and this, I feel a shame wash down my back. So, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell a really quick story that, so uh, several years ago, an associate and I uh, were invited to give a talk at this college, this Christian college. And um, we were really good friends. And so, um, and this guy was going to do the music, my associate, and I was going to do most of the speaking. And I, I referred to him as a great lover. And I, I, I thought I made it really clear that, listen, I'm married to a woman. He's married to a woman. This is platonic. It's friendship. 
But man, apparently, and I didn't really catch it in the moment. Like normally I'm kind of, you know, better at sort of reading the room, (laughs) but apparently like people were getting on social media and like, oh my gosh, we, you know, and, but again, I didn't really, I didn't understand. I get a phone call in the next hour and my associate was like, Hey, you know, these kids were jerks. You know, they totally misunderstood you, but you did this thing. And I, Steve, the, the, I mean, my back is on fire with shame. Now, when you, you say know, your back is on fire, do you mean muscularly? You can feel it hot? Yes. Yes. Really? And it goes down. Like it starts in my neck and it goes all the way down. Yeah. It's really, I mean, that's visceral. Um, I mean, sometimes I feel it in my gut too. You know, that's like a, oof. you know, if I've done something, if I've failed or if I've made a bad impression or, you know, um, yeah. So that actually leads to the next question. Um, I, I think a, a guaranteed source of anxiety for any leader is making a mistake because almost all of our mistakes are in public. You just laid one out beautifully yeah, for us. Yeah. And if, therefore, I think how we recover from our mistakes is essential to continue to be a vulnerable leader. How did you recover from that? Well, I had to talk to several different people and lay out the situation because I I was so stuck in, I totally screwed up. Like I can't, and, and the best or worst part was we were scheduled for two days in a row and that was the first day. So we were scheduled to come back. So it's like, I, I got to face this crowd again and you know, and, and they had to kind of talk about it. Like, are we going to let this person back? And oh, wow. so, um, my associate actually was really helpful cause he, he was basically like, Steve, you didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Could you have been a little more clear? Sure. But this is a case of people acting so immature and you have to call out their immaturity when, <laughs> when you come back. And I was like, Ooh, I'm not sure that I can do that. I went home and talked to my wife and again, I'm stuck. All I can, all like my anxiety is just screaming, you screwed up. Everyone's going to hear about this. Everyone's going to think you're a total idiot. Um, and so Mary, my wife, helped me kind of see that it was, you know, yeah, a combination of like, you weren't completely, you know, these are college kids, but you were treating them as like older than they actually are. These are teenage kids. You know, like think about talking to junior hires, like you, you would have. So, and so between talking to Mary and talking to my associate, um, I actually prepared a talk for the next day, which was different from that. But I prepared an intro in which I, I named what happened. You know, I named the reality of what I was trying to say. And I think in a very appropriate way, I also named the immature response and called them to, to do something better. And so I think how I um, moved through that was an acknowledgement of, I wasn't as careful with my words as I could have been. I didn't communicate the way I wanted to. And I, I could name that, but I, but for me, it was also really important, I think, to not lay the whole burden of what happened on my own shoulders. And that's what I do. It's all my fault. It's all my responsibility to get out of it. You know, um, and I think in an appropriate way, not, I, I, I think there's a danger in that. It's like, you don't want to put your own legitimate fault on someone else. But I think 
a good thing for me to do as a leader is to not take it all on by myself and when appropriate, call out what's also happening in the room. I, I think you're naming a common challenge for most leaders. We tend to be over-responsible. Yes. Uh, how do you know when you've crossed the line into being over-responsible for something? I think my sense of entitlement shoots through the roof and my, I get mad, you know, when I'm angry at people for just being people. And when I feel like, man, I got to get out of this, you know, like, like when I start doing that rehearsal, um, ministry is too hard. Um, now I think there's a, there's good, there, there's a good moment to vent for sure. And I think that's great. Like one of my favorite passages is numbers 11 when, Moses tells God, you know, if you love me at all, kill me now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's like, did I give birth to these people? Did I, you know, so we have a good example of, of healthy venting um, for a season. Yes. But yeah, I think, I think when I feel overly entitled, when I'm, you know, level 10 reaction to a level two infraction. So as an Enneagram three, when I move to nine, you know, like if I, if I start pulling way back, and disengaging, that's probably another sign that I'm taking too much responsibility because now I feel like the alternative is to just take my hands off of everything, you know, um, yeah. versus have a healthy in and out and engage. And, you know, there's a healthy engage, disengage. There's an unhealthy, you know, over-responsible. And then I'm not responsible for anything. These guys are on their own. Yeah, 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 that's good. I think um, it's pretty common for a leader that that oftentimes we're the last one in the room to know that we're not okay. You know, whether we're others focused or whether we're just driven. So for the people in your life who love you, what signs do you exhibit to them to where they know you're not okay before you know? Ooh, that is, this is the gauntlet of anxiety now. It's a gauntlet. Now we, yeah, you're going to need a nap. Yeah, now we just plumb the depths. Yeah. Um, if my guests yeah. aren't crying, I'm not happy. So, um, well, you know, I, I don't. I mean, to, to start by repeating what I just said, but I think when people see me retreating and disengaging, okay. um, there was there was a period of time in the church plant that I'm leading right now where our staff culture was pretty unhealthy, um, but I didn't really know it. You ever been in that situation? It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I, it's yeah, humbling. Yeah, in because you think you're so intuitive, you're the first person yeah. to know. But so I had a couple of staff people would say, like, Oof, did you notice what happened in the staff meeting right there? And I'd be like, no, what happened? Or, you know, but the reality was I didn't, I wasn't picking up on it because I was number one, too disengaged because I was tired. And number two, there was some conflict that I knew needed to be addressed and I was not addressing it in, in the right way. Um, I was not as involved as I should have been. Um, I'm not talking about triangulation or what, you know, so I think when I'm not okay, um, it's really important for me to look like I'm still okay. So, yeah, <laughs> which I, uh wish that wasn't true about me, but it is. Um, but in permissible ways, I will back way off and disengage. Whether that be canceling meetings that aren't totally essential, 
you know, Hey, do you notice you've, you've kind of canceled our last two one-on-ones? Why? Yeah. You know, well, cause I'm, I don't want to meet with you. Number one and two, I'm tired. And you know, I mean, I mean, that's only, and you go into self-pity like, man, if only you knew the load I'm carrying. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't. I just thought probably you did, Steve. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I also oh, like. Man. I, I I think I'm I am an introvert, truly. But sometimes I think I use that as an excuse just to, you know. Well, I need my alone time. You know. Well, no, you probably need to go to that meeting. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of family systems theory is how it helps us see generational traits that we've inherited, the cards we've been dealt. I love that it's not interested in blame. It's not looking at, oh, dad did this. Mm -hmm. it, it's just, it's it's actually helping you take more responsibility. But um, I don't know if you're familiar with genogram work. No. Uh, where you study uh, relational patterns. You start with your great-grandparents and it's a big map on a wall you draw. Who's, who's married to who, who had affairs, who's addicts, mm -hmm. uh, and it, 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 it maps emotional relationships and, and conditions, and uh, it's really powerful. Uh, so to that end, um, what family trait do you think has really been an asset for you as a leader that you've inherited, and what's a family trait that's been a liability? Ooh. Okay, so I would say my family of origin, my mom, my dad, my two sisters, um, my, something in our system promoted this idea that you can solve any problem, fix anything. You can be flexible. You can be intuitive and imaginative and you can, you can do things that you don't think you can do. For example, when I was in eighth grade, I was 14 years old. This is 1984. So a very different world, but we were living in, in Belgium and we had moved from near Los Angeles and I wanted to go visit my friends and my parents let me, but they weren't going to go with me. Right. So, I mean, 14 years old, I got on a plane in Brussels, flew to London, uh, London to Boston, cleared customs, Boston to probably Chicago, Chicago to LA. And then I got on a bus at the LA airport and went 60 miles North to where my friend was, you know, now, my son is almost 13 and I just, I just can't imagine, you know, different world. Okay. But there was something yeah. in our family system that it was like, yeah, of course, you know, and was I a little afraid? Sure. But I knew that I could do it, you know, yeah. and that has served me pretty well in leadership. I don't, um, I don't get real flustered when like, I almost get cooler when, when, yeah. Like even right now in, in COVID-19 and I was in my spiritual direction once a month and my spiritual director was noticing like, you seem more energized than I've seen you in months. And I was like, yeah, I think in this time I'm energized by, you know, we're finding different ways to do things and that's energizing. So that would be the, the, the plus, but it, you know, related to it, related to the plus, the, the strength is also the shadow. So, um, I remember early on in our marriage, we had seen this counselor for a lot of years and she said to me very sensitive. She was great. She was a fan. She loved me, but she, and she said, you know, you are really good at solving problems. 
you're also really prone sometimes to put a Band-Aid on something that really needs surgery. Mm. Um, so I, so in my family, impetuous tends to, um, make big decisions quickly, tends to gloss over boundaries and, you know, my family of origin. And so I think at times, um, in, in leadership, I can, make too light of something that really actually needs some serious work. I can think, you know, we can, you know, we can, we can make it through this if we just do this. It's like, no, no, that's going to bite you in the butt, you know? And then I get frustrated because it's like, I don't want to spend the time that it's going to take to do all that. Um, yeah. That's a great answer. That's a really great answer. All right. The final question is, I, I think, um, Faith leaders, particularly preachers, I think we're actually uniquely infected with this problem. We're really good at sharing the grace of God with others. We're really terrible at experiencing it for ourselves. When in your life do you feel most fully loved? Oh, wow. Number one, I think I struggle to feel fully loved. So that's not an easy answer for me. I don't have five, you know, stories that come up for me. Um, But... And I, it's hard for me to even describe, describe it. Like, but when someone says something to me that shows that they know something about me without me having to tell them that thing, I have a friend named Kyle. He's also a pastor. And whenever we're together, it, that kind of thing will happen. Like he, and sometimes it'll be, you know, a kind of a confrontation, um, but it'll be based on this feel more, more of a feeling that I have that he's saying that because he actually knows me. He knows my motivations. He knows my, um, you know, he's not all that impressed by me, but he's also, he also really likes me and really wants to be around me. Um, that's a really hard, I know that it's, it's like, like, honestly, that's my, um, even putting myself in a position where, I can feel loved and be loved is actually a big growth area for me, you know? Yeah. It sounds like you're describing with Kyle and this situation, like the power of feeling seen. Is that what it is? Yeah. You know, and like, it's not really fair to expect that someone will know something about you without you saying anything to them. But when someone does, when they say, uh, I think what you're feeling and what you mean is this. And it's like, yes. Yeah. Boy, that feels, um, that feels loving to me. Yeah. Great. Steve, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a, a rich conversation. I, I really appreciate you being willing to come on and, and share yourself with us. Steve, I love it. I feel like I was talking to an old friend. I mean, this was really great. Thank you so much. Your questions are fantastic. And um, it was really fun to talk to another pastor, partly about ministry, partly about the book and to feel like, ugh, here's someone that gets me. So yeah. thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.